the count comments on the the wolves of the night or something making such sweet music, right? And, and Jonathan responds, "Music, those animals." Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the 21st Century's Answer to American Gladiators. Yes, it's time for another thrilling episode of Cinema Ball. I'm Carolyn Pettit, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host and opponent, Ebony Astor. How are you doing, Ebony? Greetings, fellow human and bride of Satan. <laughs> yes, I, I'm, uh, you know, tag yourself, I'm Monica Bellucci. I didn't actually know that she was one of the brides of Dracula or whatever in this film. It's a nice little surprise. Nice little surprise, yeah. All right. Uh, this is episode 10, the second episode of the second round. Uh, Cinema Ball, for those of you uh, just joining us, is a ridiculous excuse for Ebony and I to talk about movies. Uh, in this round, Ebony is the attacking player, and she has set as her goal film the 1985 teen classic, The Legend of Billie Jean. <laughs> She was a fugitive to the police. A sensation to the media. And a symbol of courage to young people everywhere to fight for what's right. Where is she? Everywhere. The Legend of Billie Jean, directed by Matthew Robbins, featuring Pat Benatar's hit song, Invincible, rated PG-13. It's my job on defense to prevent her from getting there. Last week, Ebony linked us from Jim Jarmusch's taxicab anthology Night on Earth to Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula via the singular Tom Waits, who provided the soundtrack for Night on Earth and who appears as an actor in Dracula. Now, at the end of this episode, I'll reveal where we're heading after we leave gloomy old Transylvania behind. But for now, let's hop in a carriage with Keanu Reeves and make our way to the mustiest old castle that you ever did see. Ebony, set things up for us. Oh, it would be my pleasure. Now, first of all, Caro, had you yes. seen this before? So uh, I had actually I'd seen it in the theater, uh -huh. um, but and uh, and that was the only previous time I'd seen it. And actually, like as I was watching this film uh, a few days ago. I recalled how the production design, the the, the lurid colors and yeah. the, uh, the sets and the makeup and just everything about the way that this film is so extra and is so like in your face about it, how it looks, how that completely overwhelmed my experience of the film on uh -huh. first viewing such that like I had very little recollection of the actual plot, like the mm -hmm. story. I was just so swept up in and probably like made uncomfortable, made very uncomfortable by the, the sheer artifice of yeah. this film and the way that it wears that artifice so openly oh yeah absolutely i mean <laughs> you can be forgiven for remembering you know sort of tableau from this film more than you know the actual driving narrative especially because it's a story that's so well known right but just for you know those of you who perhaps have been living in aristotle's cave whatever don't know bram stoker's dracula or rather francis ford coppola's bram stoker's dracula is the story um ostensibly of, of jonathan harker played by your pal and Mind, friend of the podcast, Keanu Reeves, who is a young clerk, and he is engaged to um, a young schoolmistress named Mina Murray, who's played by Winona Ryder. Uh, Harker is called to Transylvania to complete some items of business that were left unfinished by a colleague who has, you know, come back to England and uh, is now in an insane asylum, a really, you know, um, uncomfortably, you know, um, violent but thoroughly of its time insane asylum uh, uh -huh. and that character's name is renfield and that's played by the incomparable tom waits oh. uh, um, but so once in transylvania harker is bewitched and kept prisoner by this you know aged count and his sensual lady crew the count leaves with harker still you know under his sway um, but meanwhile back in london the now youthful dracula seduces and courts mina 
you know, Harker's fiance, um, who appears to be the Count's long dead wife, Elisabetta. Um, and then it just like this <laughs> Boogle House series yeah. of events take place <laughs> as Dracula kind of casts his sexy spell over one of Mina's uh, rich friends named Lucy. Um, and then, you know, stuff happens, whatever. They need to vanquish Dracula. But th- that- that's the basic setup. But as right. Caro noted at the beginning, um, if you go into this movie, you are going to remember the lush costuming. You're going to, you know, you're going to remember the the way in which this film, which came out in 1992, you know, has uh, makes nods to early cinema. So there are times mm-hmm. when it that's deliberate when it talks about like the development of the cinematograph, um, but yes. also in the ways that like fight scenes and the the initial fight scenes in Transylvania are set up as like silhouettes and, and paper cutouts. Um, but do you care about the story itself no we know what's gonna happen there's there's really no suspense i mean if there's any suspense it's about whether winona Ryder, how long it's gonna take her to realize she doesn't want to marry her boring middle management fiance and get busy with some sketchy european dude which is a tale as old as time we've all been there we get it (laughs) obviously we know what's yeah you as you've like you've said like there's there's little suspense but what is 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 a a fascinating collision of themes of sexuality and like female identity you've spent a lot more time i think being steeped in the horror genre than i have yeah i think this this film and the book uh, upon which it is based so bram stoker's dracula um but also the sort of like pan-cultural fascination with vampires and bloodsuckers of that ilk, right? Like, people, I can't even tell you how many grad school theses are written on this shit every year because it's just such, like, a a rich vein to mine. So, you know, as you say, like, there's all this stuff going on there about, like, sexuality and and, and gender, um, about, like, industrialization, about the nation, you know, about, I mean, there, there are comments about, because this isn't an example of the Victorian Gothic, um, you know, there's there's ways in which like the film and the the book from which it draws are self consciously kind of shaping um, the what they are and what they present to you as a way of delivering a message. And what's you know so great about something like Dracula and about vampires as a whole is the way in which they exceed their bounds in the way that this movie kind of exceeds the narrative um, such that, you know, we, we get who the, you know, in quotes, good guys are and what is supposed to happen, but the attraction and the temptation and the lure of Dracula and his saucy ladies is so strong that at the end you're kind of like, I mean, no one, yeah. like since, since, you know, the, uh, the original book came out in, you know, 1897, uh, like people are, have been constantly reiterating Dracula, right? We're not writing stories about Jonathan Harker. No one gives a shit about Mina Murray. <laughs> you know, like it's, there's something so fascinating about this particular kind of villain. Yeah. Right. You, so you have, the character of, of Mina, I think, is in this kind of trap where Jonathan Harker, played by Keanu Reeves, um, in, in, yes, what is sort of, you know, widely considered a notoriously kind of bad performance. And, and I do want to talk a bit about Keanu and about his acting, such as it is in this film. <laughs> but I, I do think that if there's, if there's one quality that, that his performance exudes that is beneficial in a way to the film or to us understanding Mina's plight. I think that Jonathan Harker as a character understands that he, and, and the film makes a point, I think, of, of establishing this, that he's not one of the aristocracy. He is not right. a wealthy person. He is trying to, do, to operate within the systems that are available to him to do the best that he can to provide for you know himself and his wife and to do what a man is, quote unquote, supposed to do, right. to be a wholesome you know figure, a, a good husband. And as a result, like he actually he successfully makes Jonathan Harker this sort of this figure who appears kind of dull and sexless uh, when contrasted with Gary Oldman's Dracula, right? You so right. so 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 she seems to be at this sort of crossroads. Her options are what would um what certainly would appear to be a basically like chaste, dull, 
you know, sort of quote unquote respectable life as a wife and mother with Jonathan, you know, or she could live deliciously with, <laughs> oh, um, God. right, with, with Dracula. And of course, like, it's quote unquote bad for her to go down that path, but, but, the other is to sort of deny her own humanity, her own desires. And we understand, like, I mean, I was surprised by, I didn't remember how sexy this movie was. Mm-hmm. And um, I found it fascinating in that it, um, by by sometimes being so, uh, uh, <laughs> like, gross, it, w- yeah. in terms of, so Dracula as a figure often appears just incredibly like dried up he's basically like a a walking you know corpse essentially like you can tell that he's bloodless he you know he he just looks decrepit and old and disgusting and yet and yet when he is revitalized and when he is full of life and passion he is so full of of life and and sexuality that we as viewers cannot get cannot escape from I think the sort of central, uh, you know, a, a thing that is that is inescapable in in all kind of vampire fiction to to one degree or another, but that this film really wants to to pull our focus toward and drive home, which is like sex as a kind of like denial of death, right? And yeah. like the way that these things are are so inter, you know, intrinsically intertwined, e- e- even you know, though. We it's so uncomfortable to think about that so such so that we you know we generally don't right but this film yeah. this film uh I admire it a lot more than I enjoy it um mm-hmm. and I admire I I feel like it is you know it, um typically when a when a a viewer goes into a, a film um, often like they want to be able to sort of quote unquote turn their brain off. They want to be able to just give themselves over to the um the world, the you know, the the dread the 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 world that the film is conjuring and to not have themselves be made aware of the fact that they are watching mm-hmm. uh, uh, artifice right play out in front of them. This film I think it, it is uh fascinating in the way that it wants it it doesn't just want you to want to make you uncomfortable in the sense that any kind of suspense movie you know wants to make you uncomfortable like oh god behind you it wants to make you uncomfortable by making you sort of aware that you as a viewer are being um uh it's so theatrical. It's yes. so yes. theatrical, and you that you as a viewer cannot give yourself over to it and fully be unaware of what the film is doing because it is so. It is so. It's it's just so overwhelming, you know. Yeah. In its in its efforts to to do what all the things that it that it does. Yeah, I think you know the the way in which this film is kind of transparently created. Um, right, right. That, you know, so we mentioned like you know the opening with the the, the paper cutouts um, and the ways in which you know the the film sort of you know kind of mimics early cinema in a way. I think you know yes. you're, you're absolutely right in that you know um, the the way the film is shot and presented to us. You know, we're always aware that we're watching something. Sometimes watching other people watch things, like when yes. the Count and Mina are in you know the the cinematograph exhibition and they, <laughs> they watch the sort of like you know kind of early saucy stag movie um, uh, scene. But I think, you know, for me, it functioned to um, situate me in a a very particular kind of space in which I was perhaps even more receptive to the story because I was aware that a story was being told. So it was like, you know, it was was designed to kind of... um, you know, situate a viewer in a place where, yes, you're you're aware that there is a play happening, that a story is being told for you, that a world is being created. Um, and so the suspension of disbelief is about, you know, the uh, the way things happen in the story. But, you know, I, 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 I didn't require, um, you know, kind of any kind of naturalism. And in fact, I think, you know, the fact that the, the film itself is called Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? To me, 
It's about situating the film in a time and context, you know, the Victorian Gothic, to remind us that this is not a modern film. This is not a modern vampire take. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, it's about constantly reasserting this. Because, I mean, you know, remember, okay, so this, this book comes out in 1897, and we're reading it or, you know, watching this film in, you know, the year of Beyonce 2018, and we are displaced from it you know, geographically and in time in a way that readers at the time would not have been. And so we are necessarily uh, sort of understanding it in a different way. And so I think, you know, in a way, the the, the film works to foreground that in the right. way that it's presented. I, I agree completely. But, I, you know, I, I just kept thinking as I was watching this, uh, you know, a purely sort of uh, mainstream commercial commercially oriented, you know, cinematic adaptation of Dracula, even one that tried to be, you know, faithful to the the plot, right, and the basic substance mm-hmm. of the source material. You know, if a, if a commercial director were making that, um, you know, in even in 1992, you know, or today, it would make such different choices that yeah. it would it would tr- it would try to to adhere to what the overwhelming majority of sort of mainstream commercial filmmaking does, which is to to not call attention to itself as a work of cinema. Yeah. Right? To yeah. kind of just, to kind of be narratively and structurally so conventional mm-hmm. that you as a viewer are never taken out of that reverie by, oh, well, that's a, certainly a choice that Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> made there. But that's right. a kind of constant thing in this film is that overt showy mm-hmm. theatricality that to me uh made again it, it it made me uncomfortable as a viewer it works so well in support of i think what this film's aims are yeah i came away from this film thinking about how we police and and interpret uh you know female sexuality for instance because of of its its uh, again it's 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 insistence on being so uh, in your face about what it's doing, I think than I would have if if the film had been had had, had adhered to more kind of conventional commercial kind of um, storytelling, uh, you know, tradition. Yeah. So when we when we talk about the way this film looks, one of the two of the things that I wanted to bring up, which is the um, the costuming in this film, which is absolutely stunning, and yes, it is. Uh, the story goes that once uh, Francis Ford Coppola realized he wasn't going to get the budget that he initially envisioned for this, um, his response was, well, then the, the costumes will have to tell the story, which they, in many ways, they they absolutely do. So I mentioned last week that I had the incomparable experience of being at church one Easter Sunday when this white dude came in count vlad (laughs) cosplay and y'all i know you think i'm exaggerating i am so not from the top hat the the gray frock coat the little blue glasses the long brown wig i I don't know how to convince you that it happened you weren't there i was there and i have been changed okay but so the the costume designer for this film is uh eiko ishioka who sadly has passed away but who had worked with coppola um on apocalypse now um, back in 1979. And the things that she does with fabric and texture um, in this film are absolutely startling. I think, you know, one of the the more interesting ones is Lucy, Mina's friend, her her wedding gown with that elaborate kind of Elizabethan ruff. Um, it, it, I, I, I've done a little digging online and found out that, you know, quite a bit of the, the costumes in this film, even the ones that, you know, aren't sort of the, the over the top um, ones, but even the ones that, you know, are, are more naturalistic are sort of a bit anachronistic, maybe, you know, not necessarily from around 1897, but perhaps from a slightly earlier period. And obviously that Elizabethan rough is, you know, very out of period, but the way in which it highlights Lucy's head and you know, foreshadows what's going to happen later with her head is is absolutely remarkable. I didn't realize, even though I recognize the visual similarity, at the beginning of Dracula, when we first see the Count in his, you know, uh, native Transylvania fighting uh, as a general, he's wearing this um, kind of ribbed mm. red armor right. that 
that is meant to call to mind sort of the the body like uh, stripped away of skin. Yeah, you know, it looks like a muscle in a way, right? It, yeah, and there's that great that great shot, you know, when the castle gates open and he sort of marches out to battle, and he's wearing this crimson armor and the Mm -hmm. sky is crimson as well you know it's like immediately with the lurid use of color like this film is just it's just right from the start but yes yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely and and I had forgotten that the reason why it looked so familiar to me or it it didn't look familiar at that point but then a later film I I didn't realize um the movie had you ever seen The Cell with Jennifer Lopez and Vincent D'Onofrio you know I haven't Okay, well, I, I, I am going to do my best not to make that a cinema ball offering because I really don't need to see it again. But like this movie, it is a movie that uh, sticks with you visually um, more so perhaps than narratively. And anyways, it's the same costume designer. And so there's there's a, a red sort of rip. It looks almost exactly the same as, um, as the Count's armor that Jennifer Lopez wears. Um, I can't remember if it's when she's doing like, you know, the deep dive to go into the serial killer's mind or when she's actually in his mental landscape um but there's something uh, aesthetically so cool about this moment of the 90s and um and japanese designers particularly and what they were doing with color and texture and fabric that really you know um helps to advance what's going on and, and undergird what's happening in this yeah. film but i think also <laughs> like so that's that's kind of the top level thing i wanted to talk about but i also want to talk about like there's in many ways this movie if it were if there were more of kind of an absurd carnivalesque tone to it absolutely plays like a tim burton film and looks like a tim burton film such that we could have there's a version of this film in an alternate universe in which Johnny Depp played, you know, Jonathan Harper. So, you sure. know, sm- sm- small mercies. In fact, I was thinking about it and I was like, oh, yeah, Johnny Depp as Jonathan Harker, maybe Lisa Marie as one of the brides. And I remembered we got that movie. It was called Sleepy Hollow and it was directed by Tim Burton. So there you go. Yeah, uh, there's so this movie is so psychologically layered and complex, but and, and this is it, you know, as you've said, like these, these are the sorts of things that that theses are, are written about constantly. And I don't know how deep into the weeds we can get in a in a in a little podcast. But I do want to talk a bit about how about um, female sexuality yeah. as, a, as a thing that runs through this film. So so uh, Mina's friend Lucy, um, the, the the sort of contrast between the two of them, right, is that Mina is kind of you know, a little more, a little more uptight. Um, she, she's sort of, devo- you know, she's like sweetly devoted to Jonathan. And, but she says, you know, to, to, to Lucy at one point, oh, you know, all we've done is kissed. Um, whereas Lucy is a very um, freely sexual kind of character. Um, and, you know, at one point she says, you know, perhaps though I try to be good, I am bad. And what defines her as bad is that she, wants and enjoys sex uh, it seems right and so i just uh and and i don't think this question has like a simple answer um i I, like i don't think it is a simple yes the film or the world of the film is saying this or it's saying that but it's that sort of thorny puzzle that trap that i think as i said before women so often find themselves in of of I mean is the film acknowledging in any way that the restrictions placed on women are completely sort of unfair or is it like upholding this kind of rigid you know Christian morality that's you know this version of that that says that women should be like chaste and faithful and devoted and it shouldn't be like um uh, overtly like sensual and sexual beings for that way lies lies sin and uh you know and evil yeah absolutely i think that you know there's a there's a way like there's a there's a way in which um dracula's power is mirrored by the power of female sexuality in the movie in the book from which it springs such that you know remember that like um monica bellucci i think it was monica bellucci um who did it might have been one of the other brides but uh there's a scene when she is 
crawling up Jonathan Harker's body in that seduction scene and she sees his cross and she is able to melt it and proceed with her seduction Mm -hmm. um, and her ravishing in a way that Dracula was not. In a scene prior to that, Dracula was put off and repelled um, by that cross. So there's, there's a way in which like the, the film, you know, wants to show us like the, the, the power of the, the woman and female sexuality to tempt and lead astray. Um, and remember like the, the, you know, originating action that starts off all the, is the fact that, you know, Elizabeth commits suicide and that's what causes, you know, Vlad to go on a rampage for the next 400 years, boiling people's heads and kettles and whatever. Like ultimately it's all about women and what happened when women, when men attempt to possess women or women attempt to, you know, express um, desires of their own. Yeah, because, you know, when when Vlad uh, comes to London and he's in that just amazing suit, that amazing ensemble, mm-hmm. initially, uh, and throughout some of their, their interactions, initially um, uh, Mina kind of rebuffs him, right? She keeps saying... Uh, you know, she she treats him rather coldly, but the way that the film plays out, it's as if I think what, at least one interpretation of it is is that well, she's doing that out of a a a forced sense of like of devotion to her fiance, but what she you know, but what she really wants um, is not to be this this um, figure of of resistance and and will a will of her own to this man's advances. What she wants is ultimately to like surrender completely, right? She wants to submit, but she's not a powerless figure. I mean, in the mm-hmm. end of like the the last great sort of act that's that a, that that a character performs in this film is Mina like thrusting the sword through or whatever the you know is driving the the killing blow, I guess, to Dracula, um, which but. That comes out of a place of uh, an act of love and like tenderness. Mm-hmm. I I mean, this film does not allow, thankfully, for like easy, simple interpretations, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think you know one of the things that makes Mina compelling to the extent that she is, and you know, again, uh, Mina and Jonathan um, are <laughs> deliberately kind of blank slates upon which things can be written. I mean, literally so in Mina's case, right? Like she, it, it, for, for Dracula is, is a, um, a, a case, you know, she is someone who her own self has been overwritten by his memories and his desire for Elisabetta. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that the, the, the book in its historical time, um, and also the film tries to convey is that for her time, Mina was a thoroughly modern woman, right? So mm. her use of the typewriter, which was a fairly new invention in, in 1897, her interest in travel, her independence, walking in the streets alone. Um, there's, there's a, although she certainly is not as much of a voluptuary as her friend Lucy is, she's not necessarily a prude either. I mean, she is the one with the Arabian Nights book that she keeps taking a look at. Um, when we first see her with Jonathan and she draws him further into the garden, she is the one who initiates the the kissing um, and the and the petting there. So she is um, most fully herself. When she is Mina, not when she is Mina Murray, um, you know, affianced to Jonathan Harker or Elizabeth Standen for for Count Vlad, but when she is allowed to be that sort of like very remarkable modern young woman. And so, yeah, I think the film and the the book, you know, I, I, I keep talking about them both just because, you know, as I said, I think there's this real insistence upon, you know, uh, reminding us that this is a, a very Victorian mm-hmm. tale with like sort of very Victorian concerns. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, that I think, you know, the fact that she is very modern and that she represents a new way of being that people of the time might not have known how to read, you know? Right. Because Lucy and her family and Vlad, you know, and his family and his back represent like this old empire that's kind of dissolute, morally bankrupt, enervating influence on the modern body politic, 
you know? And so there's a way in which like Mina and Jonathan as representatives of this emerging middle class are kind of seen as saviors as boring and as bland as they are. Right. And, and for all of the, the, the Victorian trappings of this, of, you know, this story, I mean, these are the, the concerns around female identity in this time period, in this story are, will be uh i think are intimately familiar to women today i mean there's a Mm -hmm. there's a moment when lucy uh says um uh, something like oh you know i'm 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 almost 20 practically a hag yeah right like she's aware that already she's basically kind of about to be discarded right Mm -hmm. she's about to be considered like that horrible thing uh that i guess that picasso said that hannah gadsby quotes in in uh nanette where um you know picasso having this he's you know in his 40s or something and he's having an affair with or having a relationship with a with a much younger woman and he says you know it was perfect i was in my prime and she was in her prime like that is that is the the, the the status quo uh, idea that Lucy faces is that is that at nineteen, right? She's looking at at the, the sort of the quote unquote prime of her life in in the eyes of men and in the eyes of society being like behind her already. Yeah, I know. So, so it there's there's so much going on, and so for you know the the film is you know stuffed the gills with. Um, kind of various archetypes of of men um, <laughs> in it. So you know the the doctor representing sort of you know science in that period, and Keanu Reeves, Jonathan Harker representing sort of the world of business. Uh, Carrie Elwes representing you know the aristocracy and you know the 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 wealthy land owning class. Um, Van Helsing representing you know education of a sort um, and and knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge. There's all of that, but yeah, the the roles that are available to women in this film uh, and in this culture are still incredibly circumscribed, right? So we we have Mina, we have Lucy, we have um, the nuns, I guess, who take care of Jonathan, and I think that's it, right? Oh, and well, obviously the devil's concubines. Yeah, yeah, I, right. That's that is that is it. I want to talk about um, Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing because please, please oh, do. My God, <laughs> like I, um, I thought he was amazing. Um, I, oh yeah, like this is what a what a fantastic uh, uh, and an unusual kind of depiction of a of a figure of of who represents right in this conflict. He represents the light, right in a right. sense, um, but. He's not he's not like this somber right. uh person who views it as like this grim duty. There is the twinkle in the eye. Yes. It's it's amazing. Like it's not a it's not even like a big showy thing. It is literally pretty much like a twinkle in the eye yeah. of Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing that communicates the the just the the sense of like fun that he's ha- that he's having uh, on this quest and and yeah. like oh how he admires Dracula you know as like a nemesis and yes. the thrill of like the the chase and the contest between their the the darkness and you know death that Dracula represents and him as this figure of of light and life and and how he makes it seem appeal like he is a man of lust but not like limited to like mm-hmm. or not maybe not even including so much sexual lust but i mean he the way that he enjoys food and like yes. how he just takes <laughs> how he just takes pleasure in life right he takes yes. pleasure in life itself and that is in in a sense what makes him the ideal opponent to Dracula, whose yes. very existence is so rooted in in death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing, like he's a very kind of you know Falstaffian figure. This kind of you know yes. rotund, you know what he's <laughs> all of his lines are delivered with this this flourish. <laughs> it's like ha ha, the, de- yeah. <laughs> the devil's concubine, ho ho, <laughs> and he's yes. just a delight on the screen. And you know the way he sort of you know gleefully um, 
undiplomatic in scenes where he talks about like, you know, no, I don't want to do an autopsy. I just want to cut off her head and take uh-huh. out her heart, you know? Um, but yeah, he, he's absolutely matched with, with Gary Oldman as Dracula for who, I mean, for both of them, every scene is a morsel. Every word is something to be drawn out or, you know, sort of savored. Um, there's, there's no heights or depths of expression uh, that they won't explore. Um, and so it, it absolutely works. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, camp and melodrama, uh, you know, to it, like uh, their archetypal, you know, extent, right? But you absolutely, for a villain, the way that Gary Oldman is playing him, you absolutely do need someone to rate on the other side who can match him. Yes. Uh, tonally, because as wonderful, I mean, okay, Keanu Reeves. Mm-hmm has gotten a lot of stick for his performance in this film. Some of it rightly deserved. Some of it, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, it is terrible, but I feel like his, the, the horribleness of his accent is so distracting that I think were that not the case, I don't think his performance maybe would have come in for so much tension because as we say, like part of his job in this film is to be, you know, the kind of like upstanding, you know, yeah. kind of like boring guy. Like that's exactly. what he's supposed to do. We're not supposed to be wondering, like, gosh, why her Jonathan's so hot and like <laughs> right. and like available and like real. Like, why would she? No, I mean, we're supposed to understand that the 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 stark contrast between the kind of you know again like very chaste existence on mm-hmm. one hand and the the just the the. The, yeah, the the sexual um, life that that the other option provides. I think we're both big admirers of uh, Angelica uh, Bastien. I yeah. think one of the one of the great new voices in sort of pop culture writing. And you know, um, I think last year or you know not too long ago, she wrote what I think was a, a much needed and I think is absolutely incredible. Uh, piece it's called the grace of Keanu Reeves and it is mm-hmm. her piece kind of a rebuke to or a response I should say to, to to sort of decades of 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 what it became the accrued sort of conventional wisdom that oh Keanu Reeves just isn't a good actor like oh he's just like a really bad actor yeah. like she deeply it's a it's a deep and and wonderful appreciation of Keanu as an actor uh I just want to read a bit about um what she says about um, about Dracula. After quoting uh, a number of reviews from the period uh, in which the film was released that were very unkind about Keanu's performance, uh, Bastien admits, right, she concedes, yes, in Dracula, Keanu is overburdened by the period costumes, lost in the details of each frame as if he were another illusion, appearing as though he's wandered onto the wrong set, this isn't because he's out of his depth. It's because he's fighting against his natural instincts as an actor. The harsh criticism of Keanu's performance in Dracula seeks to dismiss his career as a whole, but Keanu wouldn't have such a long-running su- successful career without fulfilling a, con- a cultural need or tapping into something primal that draws our attention. And she goes on to to highlight uh, or to, to articulate Keanu's particular draw as, as this. Um, I found myself attracted to Keanu's presence because of the way he marries typically masculine and feminine qualities. He's both intense and vulnerable, kind and tough, honest and mysterious. You know, where other actors who maybe sort of occupy this same period, the same space, um, where other where other actors might seem cynical or disinterested or too wounded as a romantic lead, Keanu is utterly open. And I think that that's true. Keanu is on screen. He's very compelling when he can just be this sort of vulnerable, open-hearted figure. And the role of Jonathan Harker, by its nature, requires a figure who is performing a certain amount of artifice, Mm -hmm. uh, right? He, he, when he goes to see Dracula, um, and he says things that, that Dracula reacts very, uh, very angrily toward, he understands that he is there as a servant of sorts. He has a role to play as a businessman. He has to, Mm -hmm. to look good for the firm that he's representing. And so, Right, he he says like I have 
I have offended you with my ignorance. I'm sorry. Or, you know, and it's not so much that Harker, in my mind, is honestly apologetic so much as it is that he understands as a as a member of the sort of upwardly mobile but still financially precarious mm-hmm. um, sort of working class. Uh, he he has to maintain that layered performance. And um, if there's one moment in this film where his performance, I think, is kind of powerful, it's the one moment in which um, while at Dracula's castle as a prisoner, he he has a sort of complete breakdown and he just mm-hmm. kind of starts screaming and yelling and shaking um, because because all of the artifice sort of in that moment falls away and and we see what uh, what effect this is really having on Jonathan internally, but then yeah. he, re- he but then he ha- he returns to that sort of controlled space, right? Of 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 putting on the persona of the the um, the devoted uh, boyfriend and the, the you know the the decent um, accountant or lawyer or mm-hmm. whatever he is. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's hard for me to go back to the mental place I was in when I saw this for the first time in 1992, because, of course, rewatching it now, um, there is the the aura of, you know, John Wick and Constantine about me, um, a series of films that I could not love more and a version of Keanu as an older actor that I could not be more invested in, but to me feels, and I recognize the, um, the ludicrousness of me saying this. I do not know Keanu Reeves as many times as I've written him. He refuses to write back, but I, to me feels more authentic to who he is because I think, you know, Keanu does get a lot of stick for being a very, um, sort of vapid and reactive and kind of passive person on screen when he is anything but, um, but his strengths uh, do are those things that allow for him to have, yeah, those moments of like uh, emotional expression or physical, you know, action, which, you know, you know, as you know, he is not allowed or Jonathan Harker is not allowed. Everything has to be very buttoned up. Um, you know, everything yes. has to be like there are rigid social mores and conventions that that have to be observed. And so in as much as, you know, Jonathan and <laughs> might want to, you know, lash out at uh, at the count and be like, no, nah, I'm going to bounce. I, I'm not staying here for a month or, you know, you're looking at my my girlfriend and her locket and I'm kind of uncomfortable with this. He knows that he can't do that. And so, you know, Keanu as an actor has to has to kind of convey that. So whether that's entirely successful throughout the film for everyone, it, it's it, like I said, it's hard for me to get back into that place where I was in 1992 I will say that on first viewing I think the person that I actually thought was the the weakest link was Winona Ryder who I I love as an actor but there was a there was a I don't know an intensity to her and also she really unfortunately her accent is also so thoroughly distracting um that I I had I just I couldn't I never completely surrendered to her in this film at first, I I uh, was taken out of the film to a certain extent by her because in my mind she's so associated with contemporary mm-hmm. uh, settings and cinema, um, right? I mean, I I, I can't if you, if I see her in um, in Reality Bites or some film that mm-hmm. take that takes place in 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 the modern era, she feels right at home to me mm-hmm. um, because I, 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 I just associate a certain very contemporary kind of quirkiness yeah. with her. Um, and when she appears uh, in a film like this, initially it's, she seems very out of context uh, to me, but, but as the film goes on and um, she she has to sort of navigate all the complexities of uh, Mina's sort of emotional and sexual awakening. I thought she, I, I came to think she was actually very good in the film. Wow. Uh, yeah, a, a, personally. 
a, a <laughs> bold, a bold statement from Carolyn. <laughs> I think you know where uh, there's so much. Like I said, <laughs> books are have been written about this yeah. stuff and are being written right now because there's just so much to unpack about, you know, the vampiric genre, about, you know, gothic horror as a genre, about, you know, we, we didn't even talk about the fact that it was like Francis Ford Coppola directed this film. Right. Francis Ford Coppola of The Godfather of, you know, uh, you know, Peggy Sue got married, if, if that's your bag, you know, of Apocalypse Now. Like, that's, that's hugely important to this conversation too. We haven't even had a chance to talk about that well right i mean we did talk about how how it's clearly a film of choices Mm -hmm. it's not it is it is a film that where you know coppola um wants you as the viewer again to be uh to be very aware of the artifice that's being that's being conjured in front of you you know i was sort of thinking as i was watching this film about other directors who very much leave their stamp on their work but can maybe uh, can maybe make that uh, imprint, that personal style, um, hue a, li- a little more closely toward the commercial. And so I, I was thinking about um, about Peter Jackson and the Lord mm. of the Rings films, mm-hmm. which I think are um, audacious. Like mm-hmm. I think that Peter Jackson is an audacious director when he's at sort of the peak of his powers, and I think that those films are full of distinctly Jacksonian flourishes and moments of energy. And, and that's what makes them cinematically interesting to me it, mm-hmm. that they are that, that as, and I'm a huge Tolkien fan. I'm a huge fan of the literature, but I really appreciate that the, that it, that those films are very cinematic adaptations mm-hmm. that they are not, you know, you could contrast them in a sense with maybe the first few, um, like Chris Columbus directed Harry Potter films, which are not cinematically interesting. They, you know, approach their source material and just try to kind of present it on screen and in no way kind of uh, call attention to themselves as works of cinema. Whereas Peter Jackson is very, um, he wants to, interpret the source material he wants to imbue it with a distinctly cinematic life Mm -hmm. and francis ford coppola you know in in his own way here is doing you know something similar in that in that yeah he he is not he's not trying to lull the audience into the the standard reverie that one enters when we go to the movies he wants them to be he wants you to be shaken up to be aware of you uh, of your participation um in the act of viewing this um this this world of of, again of Mm -hmm. artifice that he Mm -hmm. that he creates wow wow i mean you're right like there's so much going on in this movie and we could absolutely spend uh, a good long long time um talking about it before we move on uh, is there are there any sort of final thoughts you want to work in before we mo- we move into our wrap up segments? I'll tell you what. Uh, so this episode is going to come out um, on I believe like August tenth. Yes. And I absolutely am going to be on Twitter, Medium, uh, all of our channels talking about something we we didn't have a chance to unpack, and I, I won't you know make you talk about it now because it'll send us into another you know two hours, but. Um, the thread of, of nationalism and mm. xenophobia that runs through these kinds of texts, which is, is, is very explicit, you know? I mean, like, you know, the sort of thread of contamination of people from the outside um, is, is, you know, hugely important uh, to understanding works like this. And so uh, when this film comes out is when I'm going to release the hounds on that particular discussion. Stay tuned. Excellent. All right. Uh so for now, we're going to move into wrapping up our discussion of Bram Stoker's Dracula with a round of Fab Five slash Furious Five, in which we run down five moments or details about the film that we, you know, loved or hated or just can't get out of our heads for whatever reason. Uh, Ebony, you go ahead and start us off. All right. Uh, so mine are a Fab Five. Um <clears throat> because <laughs> while I acknowledge there's a, a a lot that could be worked on in this film, it it, it just 
It's in the pantheon of films that if it's on TV, I'm going to sit down and watch it because I just, I get into it. Um, so my, my fab five, number five, the fabric, the Lucy's wedding dress, the fact that she has so many nightgowns for one thing, but just, there are scenes like with, um, Dracula's cape, which we're so accustomed to being in this, you know, uh, kind of high collared black cape, but you know, uh, Aiko Ishioka transforms that into this long, rich, blood red cape that trails behind him for yards. And there are scenes when the wind machine in this film is just working overtime to the, the, the silks and the velvets. Oh my God, the fabric in this film. I was in love. Uh, number four, modernity. The touches of modernity and the way that they are folded into the narrative and become part of the narrative, I just found so interesting. So we talked about like, you know, uh, moving cameras or, you know, the cinematograph, um, you know, the birth of cinema. Um, the, the way that that's given to us, uh, the typewriter, you know, these are things, you know, that, as I said, we're, we're all new inventions at the time that this book comes out and they're absolutely part of, um, the story, you know, the way that this count from the old world, um, is coming to what is meant to be like this bright, bustling, new, very modern Britain, um, and is revived by that, you know, like he is, you know, um, you know, kind of a, a desiccated figure back where he is, but, you know, comes and is able to get that energizing energy from this new Britain. Uh, number three, <laughs> uh, when Van Helsing says, we've all become God's madmen. I don't know. I just, <laughs> I love that line. I loved his delivery of it. It was fantastic. Uh, number two, again, neither this film nor the book upon which it is based can deny the appeal of the abject. Like, you know, Dracula has survived for centuries as a cultural idea because just the idea of this character is just so sexy to us. I love that. Like there's the, the, the literally refuses to die. I love it. Uh, and then my final number one fab five, uh, is that dove gray suit. I, I just, I, yeah. I will never, ever, ever get over seeing that suit <laughs> in my church wearing that suit. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, in fact, uh, the suit uh, rated on, on my list as well. And, I mean, I was thinking about how, um, by that point in the film, right, we've been, of course, we've been to Transylvania. We've seen Dracula in in his castle home. We've seen him in his sort of most decrepit and blood-drained um Form. And the fact that he then appears so uh, full of, of uh, seemingly exuding youthfulness and life and yeah. desire and 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 sexiness in that suit that just like, mm -hmm. oh, my God, that immaculate suit, which to me is just it's one of these sort of iconic uh, fashion statements, yeah. you know, in, in in all of cinema. But it also suggests the facade of it's a very it's a very um uh yeah it's a i would suspect for the time it would be a very sort of modern um suit i mm -hmm. at least you know it, it's so stylish um but by being so stylish and by being in london in it it suggests some somewhat to me the the facade of of quote unquote civilization, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. right? It's a it is a performance. It is it is something that that Dracula is assuming, um, in order to kind of participate in in the bustling life of of London. Um, but we know, of course, that we know his quote unquote true nature, um, and so it it just kind of suggests suggests in a larger sense i think that the degree to which uh so much of of civilization is is in a sense a facade right is this thing mm -hmm. that that we buy into and and uh put on as a performance for ourselves and others yeah and, and not to distract you but there's an interesting visual parallel which i did not pick up on until this most recent watching which is his dove gray suit and then when mina gets married to jonathan in romania she's wearing this sort of you know female or uh -huh. feminine version of a that dove gray suit uh to get married in 
Mm. You know, with, that, with yeah. you know, the sort of like the sort of taller hat and, you know, the colors and the, the shape of it. So anyways, please proceed. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know if this is a Fab Five, a Furious Five, uh, what this this particular item on my <laughs> list. But it's just the one line reading in the film that um, that did stick with me when I saw the film initially and that certainly um, people in my social circles would quote uh, uh, in jest. Oh, I, I cannot wait. Uh, with 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 some frequency. Um, uh, poor Keanu. Sorry, I love you, Keanu, so much. But um, yeah, we would often, my friends and I would often uh, quote him saying, um, music, those animals. Um, <laughs> which, he, you know, he says... Uh, when he's trapped in the count's castle, and the count, the count comments on the the wolves of the night or something making such sweet music, right? And, and Jonathan responds, "Music, those animals." Um, um, yeah. On the other side of that, uh, right? If if Keanu's performance and if Keanu's Jonathan is so kind of controlled and 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 stilted in a sense because of Keanu's performance being what it is um Jonathan seems like a man who's not really inhabiting himself fully and truly by contrast Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing just seems again like just so full of life so full Mm -hmm. of appetite and and um I mean there's um there are like Van Helsing movies, right? With uh, is it, oh, is yeah, it Hugh, well, uh, Jack- Hugh Jackman, Hugh Jackman yeah. uh, which I've never seen, but um, but I this performance uh, made me wish for more more hero figures like this because he's certainly not what he, he doesn't fit the mold of the kind of conventional action hero, right. but. But man, is he just fun to watch, and he he absolutely works as a, in the context of this film as this as this um, heroic figure of sorts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the, there's a music cue or sound cue, maybe. Um, uh, this is number two on my list that happens. Um, not long after uh, Jonathan Harker arrives at. Um, in Transylvania, when um, the count introduces himself, and um, he, the line is simply "I am Dracula," um, <laughs> and I love that pronunciation too. Like you hear it a few times in the film of Dracula. Mm-hmm. It just it sounds so great. But as he says that, um, there's this sort of I don't know if it's this it's this imposing foreboding sort of chorus of ominous voices that like build up as he's just saying i i am and then it's like they just dissipate when he says dracula they go mm-hmm. and it's it's indicative of the film's overall kind of theatricality and it, it's so openly kind of manipulative and sort of self-conscious i just love that the film um, is constantly operating on that on that level of just overt, overt um, artifice. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so number one on my list are um, the moments early on with Dracula that I take to be an homage to the campiness of earlier uh, of some earlier vampire cinema. I have never read the original novel. I don't know if there's any of this kind of uh, winking, nudging humor in it. But as he's interacting with Jonathan uh, in the very early scenes, um, (laughs) Gary Oldman has a few... Really great kind of cheesy yep. vampire lines, right? One of them, they're sitting down to, to dinner and he says, uh, you know, he, he says, I hope you'll excuse me. I've already, I've already eaten and, and I never drink. Why? Yes. Like that perfect pause, yes. right? That perfect yes. pause of, of the, 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 before the, the sort of little comic punchline. Yeah. And if the other line that kind of I, I, I lump together with that one is when he describes uh, Jonathan, he tells Jonathan that he seems like a man of good taste. <laughs> um, I like those moments. I just, 
they're surprisingly playful for a movie yes. that is otherwise so um so just um gothic right yeah. um they're they're so playful and fun not that yeah. and not that those two things aren't often um juxtaposed but uh but i was i was surprised that that uh coppola um allowed the film to to be so kind of playful mm-hmm. about about vampires um, in that particular way. Yeah. Uh, so those are my Fab and Furious Five. Okay, now it's time for us to render our verdicts on this film using Ebony's brother's patented 100-star scale. No other method in prominent use allows for the kind of scientific <laughs> precision that you will find here on Cinema Ball. I mean, a million films out there get three and a half stars, right? How are you supposed to sort through all those three and a half star films? With us, you know that a film that gets a 77 is clearly superior to a film that gets a 76 because film criticism is not an art, it's a science. You can find our full list of episodes and our full rating history and the document linked in the podcast description. All right, Ebony, how do you rate Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Ooh, this one was a was a hard one for me because I I rate it uh, one way when we talk about the mise en scène of mm. the film. I, I rate it another way when we talk purely about um, the narrative, uh, the or the casting or whatever. But I I feel I feel pretty comfortable in my my final reckoning. Uh, I am giving. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Gary Oldman's Anthony Hopkins Tom Waits Dracula at 82 out of 100. Okay. Um yeah, I I um I'm somewhat conflicted um because I I think that this is an essential film. I think that it is a singular vision, right? Francis Ford Coppola um, had a vision for this film and he went uh, all the way. He was fully committed to that vision. And, and there are um, so few films that I think uh, have a kind of sheen of mainstream uh, action slash horror filmmaking that are as, uh, bold and just creatively um, challenging in the choices that they make as this film. Um, I, it, it's a film that, um, again, it makes me uncomfortable at times as a viewer, uh, not in the sense of, uh, uh, of the ways in which we expect a horror or suspense film to make us uncomfortable where we're uh, sort of maybe holding our breath because we're worried about the characters, but rather it makes me uncomfortable as a viewer by, by trapping me uncomfortably in this space between buying fully into its world and its narrative and kind of holding me at arm's length with its theatricality, which I think is mm-hmm. intentional um, and I think is, is successful. Uh, it's just not, it's not in pleasant, but art should not always be pleasant and art shouldn't be purely entertaining and art shouldn't, you know, be a lot of these things that we often think movies are you know quote unquote supposed to be Mm -hmm. um if they're going to be good or successful so i i'm giving this film after much deliberation um the scientifically accurate uh rating of 75 it it doesn't get more precise folks yeah that's right we are (laughs) laser laser focused accuracy with these uh with these ratings. All right. Absolutely. Now, <clears throat> Carol, I am breathless yeah. with anticipation. It is time for you to yeah. reveal our next cinematic destination and whose coattails we're riding to get there. Give it to me. All right, everyone. Ebony, dear listeners, <laughs> pack your bags. Because oh, God. We, <laughs> we are leaving gloomy old Transylvania behind. We are uh, hitching a ride with wonderful character actor Richard E. Grant. I love this uh, already. Who 
who uh, has recently been announced uh, to be in Star Wars Episode Nine. So y'all can look forward to that. But uh, for now, we will be tagging along with Richard E. Grant as he makes his way to sunny, sunny Los Angeles to participate in Steve Martin's quintessential early 90s comedy, wow. L.A. Story. I, I thought you were going to zig and you zagged, always huh. keeping me on my toes. I... Cannot wait. Wow. It's been a long time since I've seen L.A. Story, but I I do know, I certainly recall it v- vividly enough to know that whether you love it or hate it, it is a film of interesting choices. It is not a conventional <laughs> uh, uh, comedy. It, it will give us so much to talk about. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So join us again next week. Yes. When, uh, when we, uh, when we arrive and, you know, you couldn't ask for a more different setting really uh, uh, from Dracula than what awaits us in LA story. Uh, so, uh, so stick around for that. That's going to do it for us this week, folks. Thank you so much to Simplecast, which hosts both this podcast and our flagship show, Feminist Frequency Radio. Thanks also to our amazing producer, Sarah Norales, who imbues this show with a cinematic style of its own. And hey, yes, thank you for listening. If you like the show, hey, why not leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to help more people out there discover just what Ebony and I get up to when Anita's not watching. Just please don't tell Anita, though, okay? Thanks. We'll see you back here next week for another thrills, chills, and spills-filled episode of Cinema Ball. (laughs) Bye, everybody. The current score for Cinema Ball is Carolyn 3, Ebony 0.